Isaiah chapter 22, as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah, we'll be looking at this chapter in its entirety. Before we go to it, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would help us with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that as we read from it, as we hear from it, that we would know that these words are about you. They are about what you have done, what you are doing, and that we would find ourselves in awe of what you've done, that we would find ourselves subject to your words. We pray, Lord, that you would make us that way more and more, and that you would teach us what it means to follow you, that you would teach us more about you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, as I read this text today, it reminded me of a video that I had recently watched on YouTube, and it was a montage of athletes who had celebrated too early, you know, and and ended up losing. Kind of like the sprinter who thought he was ahead, and so he turned, you've probably seen the video, he turned to the crowd and was like trying to hype the crowd up, and then all of a sudden this dude just flies right past him and, and wins instead. So he hyped the crowd up for second place uh the cycle there was a cyclist who did the same thing who like was throwing his hands up in excitement and then a couple of people passed him right there at the last and um he lost so uh the same kind of things happen in all sports it's pretty interesting video volleyball basketball early celebrations costing the team the game so why do they do that why do people do that they forget themselves for a split second They let their opponent creep in ever so sneakily and beat them. In some of the videos, the losing team, the one who did ended up losing but shouldn't have lost, couldn't believe it. They even went to the official and were like, this can't be happening. Or, did you see that? One of the groups like, did you see it? Did it really happen? We were just celebrating and now we're going home losers. That's worse than a normal defeat, defeat because you kind of try to experience the thrill of victory before it was even you even have victory and then that's stolen from you it's deflating it's the the only person you have then to blame is yourself as well for your arrogance and for your pride so in our text today jerusalem is taking the stage as the one that looked like they had won by a landslide but actually they allowed the enemy to creep in and destroy them it wasn't some sort of unimportant athletic contest. It was life and death. An entire way of life really comes to an end when when Israel is finally taken over by Babylon. And uh, that's an event really that sends aftershocks even into our current day. This idea of pride and arrogance is also at center stage today as we look at the text concerning how the nation of Judah dealt with their victory over the Assyrians. They had an, a temporary victory over the Assyrians, and then we're going to look at this, these two individuals in the text, one named Shebna and one Eliakim, and they are kind of set opposed to one another. One is a leader who loved himself, the other is considered an honorable man. And it's said of Eliakim even that he held the keys to the house of David, which is a pretty significant phrase in Scripture. There's only, only one who ultimately holds that key, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. So as usual... This will point right to our Savior and our need for Him and the world's need for Him. So with that, let's look at the text. 
with three ideas, the vision for Jerusalem, the vision for Shebna, and the vision for Eliakim. So let's look together. Isaiah chapter 22, let's stand together as we read in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 22, starting at verse 1. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town? Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All of your leaders have fled together without the bow. They were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they have fled far away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, And you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem. And you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. And you made a reservoir between the two walls for the pool of old, or for, between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it, or see him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl around and around and throw you like a ball into the wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him in the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
So before we get started, just a little background and review. More than likely, this prophecy was about the time after Assyria was defeated on the walls of Jerusalem. Remember, Assyria had went through all the region, attacking and destroying all the nations. And they came up to Jerusalem also to sack them. We will talk more about this particular incident in the coming chapters. But basically, Assyria had destroyed, again, all these surrounding villages and towns and had laid siege to Jerusalem itself. Jerusalem is historically one of the hardest cities in the world to conquer. Uh, It's not been done very many times, actually, because of its surrounding geography. Yet, it wasn't the geography that saved Judah on that day. It was the Lord himself, if you're familiar with that story. And remember, by this part in the timeline, the northern kingdom had already been conquered, so Judah and Benjamin were really the only tribes that were left out of the original 12. So you'd think that by this time, Judah would have turned to the Lord and thanked him, that they would have been humble and repentant, returning to the Lord in service and in worship. And you'd think that that would have been an easy fix for them, but they didn't. And I think that we all understand that since we usually behave in a similar kind of way. Rather than turn to the Lord, we turn to ourselves in those times of victory, wanting to pat ourselves on the back. And so that's where we begin the vision of Jerusalem. Verses 1 and 2, an oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. So you get this picture of this celebration, the Valley of Vision. Uh, It's definitely pointing to Jerusalem, but we don't really know why. It could be that it's an insult. Jerusalem is not a valley. It is surrounded by valleys, so maybe it's just kind of mocking them and that after what's going to happen to them, there'll be a valley instead of a mountain, which is a, a normal kind of picture that the mountains would be laid low. So maybe this is Israel being laid or Jerusalem being laid low. Or it just could point to the fact that, you know, they they receive a vision from the Lord. Quite often the Lord speaks to them. The, they're the nation that the Lord speaks to and through. And so it could be that. Not really sure why they referred to the Valley of Vision, but it's what they are referred to. But we do have them gathering on rooftops, which is not uncommon in this part of the world where things like, you know, especially this time where air conditioning had, you know, a couple thousand years away from being invented. And so people were on the roofs celebrating, and they were out in the streets celebrating. But what the problem is, is before Assyria had come in, many of the leaders, many of the people had fled the town in fear. They left thinking that Assyria was going to defeat them. So when Assyria didn't defeat them, they came back and celebrated as if they had won some great war all on their own, even though they were the ones that, as the text says, you're slain or not slain with the sword. All your leaders have fled. Without the bow, they were captured. So you get this picture of them fleeing and now coming back in and celebrating. Doesn't make a lot of sense since they really didn't do anything. Isaiah, verse 4, shows how he feels about this. He says, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. Isaiah knew what was coming. 
this victory over Assyria was a short, temporary sort of thing, and that in the distant future, there was another enemy that was going to be coming for the people of God that was going to represent the Lord's judgment on his own people. Just like Assyria had been a judge of the northern kingdom, Babylon is going to be a judge of Judah. The book of Habakkuk details this. In Habakkuk chapter 1, the, the prophet asks the question. He's looking for a change among his people. He's looking for a change of heart. And the Lord steps in and says, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in your day that you wouldn't even believe, even if you were told. I'm sending in the Babylonians, that pagan nation, and they're going to judge you for your sin. Isaiah knew that was happening. And it, it saddened him. And that's what you see in verses 5 through 8. For the Lord of the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of the walls and shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver, the chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. So what's interesting here is you kind of have several nations in on this when when Jerusalem is finally taken over it's not just Babylon but it's Elam who we learn is Persia and Kir who we learn is Syria there are lots of other Old Testament books that deal with this particular incident and then even deal with the the people of Judah when they are in exile the book of Jeremiah for instance the second part of verse 8 begins to look back then at this time when Assyria came in that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, some sort of armory or something like that where they stored their weapons. And it keeps going. It says, you saw the breaches of the city of the David were many. You collected waters from the lower pool. You kind of have this preparation that's going on. And what was the Lord wanting during that time? What was he wanting the people of God to do when they, they knew that their enemy was at the gates? Of course, God always wants the people to draw closer to him. You see that in, in verse 12. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning. Why was Assyria coming to begin with? In judgment of them. So he, he was hoping that he would have repentance. But instead, what do you get? Verse 13. And behold, joy and gladness. Killing of oxen. Slaughtering the sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Rather than going to the Lord in repentance, thanking Him for the good thing He had done for them, they're not. They're celebrating. Rather than offering sacrifice to the Lord, they're taking those things that they would normally use to sacrifice, and they're eating them. And they're getting drunk. And they're saying things like, let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. We do not trust the Lord. We might as well just throw caution to the wind. None of this even matters. And so we'll just do however we please. There couldn't be a much more blatant disregard for the Lord's care for them and protection of them. Reminds me of the person that thinks that they're just about to win. That they get past in the end. In their arrogance, they forgot that it was a race. They forgot about all the hard work and time that they put in to get them where they are. And they kind of turned that off for a second. For Israel, they forgot that it was the Lord that had brought them this far. 
And it was going to be bad for them. As you see in verse 14. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. He tells Isaiah this. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die. There was not going to be forgiveness for them. It does not get much more plain to that. One of the most plain verses in Scripture, really, concerning the judgment of the Lord. It's final and it's complete. I think this is particularly tough for us. We live in a world that values success and victory. And success and victory aren't bad things. But when they become the most important thing, it is pretty rough. We imperceptibly move away from God. We start giving credit. We want to give credit to Him, but perhaps we're just paying lip service to Him. Kind of like someone who just wins a game and says they want to thank God. And really they're just maybe not thanking Him at all. And then they start giving Him just a little credit or maybe not as much credit. And then they start talking about the things that they have done over and over again and how good they are and why they're worthy. I recently watched a Word Faith teacher who um, had the audacity that said that God recently came to him for advice. I mean, can you imagine positioning yourself in such a place to no longer see God as your provider, as the creator, as your redeemer, but seeing him as an equal who needs to come to you for advice? That God had a question, of God was questioning what he should do came to this man, this man offered him advice, and then God did the thing that he said he should do. Can you imagine that arrogance? To say, here's a good idea, God. I know it's actually one that you haven't thought of at all, and that you needed me to make you wise. Absolutely incredible. Don't let this extreme example of stupidity let you feel easy, though. Because every time that we sin, we grab just a little bit of that. And we say, see God, this is a better idea. And so we have to see ourselves in this picture. The sin on display here is one that forgets God is the doer and the maker of all things. We are merely the receiver of his goodness, of his mercy. Were it not for his mercy, we'd be struck down the first time we looked at him and said, God, this is a better idea. It is His mercy that allows us to keep walking. It's because of His mercy, namely the mercy of sending His Son to pay for our wretchedness, that we are able to go to Him and worship in repentance at all. And that's what we should do. That should be our response when He does good for us, is to go to Him and worship in repentance. That brings me to the next point, the vision of Shebna. Shebna... Just a little bit of an aside on him. He's not mentioned a whole lot in Scripture. A couple of passages in Second Kings. He was the steward uh, during the reign of Hezekiah, the king that will be featured prominently throughout this book later. He basically would have been like the second in command of the king. He would have been the king's mouthpiece when the king was away. He would have acted on the king's behalf. It was a very powerful position. One that would be very easy to allow to get to your head definitely very easy and we see just that thing happening there in verse 16 the Lord's asked him he says what have you to do here and whom have you here that you would have cut out here a tomb for yourself you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock 
the idea here is, is that Shebna is carving for himself a tomb or having one done for him that would normally be reserved for royalty. He's placing himself in a place that he is not. He's ascribing royalty to himself even though he's not part of the royal line. He's just a steward. And so for the rest of the time here, we have God's response to Shebna's arrogance. It's very similar to the first part of the passage. Some group or someone thinks that they're more than what they are. God's wrath is similarly displayed. Look there at 17 through 19. Some very vivid pictures of what the Lord plans to do to Shebna. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O strong one. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into the wide land. There you shall die, as if we had any doubt that he was going to die after being hurled violently by the Lord himself. This is almost a mocking thing for the Lord to say this to him. I mean, you even see that in the text. He calls him, O strong man, or O mighty man. And the Lord is, even though he's so strong and able, Shebna, the Lord is able to seize a firm grasp on him and whirl him around as if he's throwing a ball. It's almost like a picture of a wrestling match. I just love to be able to work wrestling into the sermon any way I can. You know, you see, remember Andre the Giant, this big, big dude, and they would throw in some little guy against him. He would, could literally just toss them around like they were a piece of paper. They were nothing to him. And so you kind of get that picture, even just on a grander scale. The Lord is going to toss him like a ball. And wherever he lands, there you shall die. A graphic picture of the demise of Shebna. He will be thrust from his office, and another will take his place. There in verse 19. You can read about this in other parts of the Old Testament. Not the deposing of Shebna. But in the rest of the Old Testament, he is listed as a scribe, which is basically someone who follows everybody else around and writes the things down that they say. So his much lower position. Pride and disgrace tend to go hand in hand in the scriptures as they do in all of life. As we look at Shebna's story, I think we had to consider ourselves here again as well. It's really easy to point fingers at him and somehow think that we're in the clear because he's such a stark example of that. What he's doing, though, isn't really all that egregious. It is, pride is definitely a sinful, you know, it's definitely a bad thing. But this is something that any one of us could find ourselves doing, positioning in our, ourselves in a place that we really aren't. Especially, you know, God is getting ready to toss this man to and fro as if he is nothing. And we say, well, obviously God wouldn't do that to me because, you know, well, I'm not that that bad. It's always the other guy's level of pride that is too much. Our own is perfectly manageable and perfectly under control. Whatever is just a little bit more than us is too much. Everything else is fine. And, of course, most people are more prideful than ourselves, right? It's always that way until it isn't. Just a little bit of pride that we have gathered for ourselves finally caves in and we are left with nothing. You see this in some very extreme examples in our own world and even in the faith. 
with things like people leaving the faith, adultery, laundering money, predators of all kinds. You see this in a grand scale. But you also see this in the story of angry pastors and disgruntled church members. It doesn't have to be something that is just so big and on display. It can be the normal, everyday folks like you and I. Before we know it, our pride will be such that it will require the Lord's direct intervention in order to bring us back to reality, to toss us to and fro so that we can know who we are. Let us be ones, brothers and sisters, who are constantly checking that. Just ask yourself. I encourage you to ask this of yourself and be, be regular in this question to yourself. When is the last time that I received criticism and how did I take it? That is usually a pretty good picture of the way you consider yourself and your level of pride. Ask a friend if they see it in you. And then ask them again to be honest because they probably won't be the first time. They'll probably be not. But tell them that you want it hard. And that's good. You need that. Let us be ones who think of ourselves far less frequently than we do. Focus our hearts and minds on things above, on our Lord Jesus rather than ourselves. That brings me to the last point, the vision of Eliakim. And so here we have almost the opposite thing happening, right? Eliakim is put in the place of Shebna. He is given the robe and the sash and the authority of Shebna. And then we read that he, verse 22, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. We could do an entire series on this idea, but we'll just spend the next few minutes talking about it. In 2 Samuel 7, God tells David that there will always be one of his sons, David's sons, on the throne, always and forever. That a son of David will always be on the throne. And who is that ultimately pointing to? Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of that, King of kings, Lord of lords, David's son, yet David's Lord. In Revelation 1, remember we read about Jesus, what was he given? the key to death in Hades. In Revelation 3, we're going to read, as we continue our study in that book, that he has the keys of David. They're his. They're his to give. He gave them to Eliakim for a time, but they're ultimately his for all time. And of course, Jesus doesn't fail at this task. And even as good as Eliakim must have been, it seems like for the things that are said about him that he must have been a good dude, even as good as he is, notice what happens. Verse 24, this is, this is how he's seen. Uh, verse uh, 23, And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue every small vessel, vessel from the cups to all the flagons. Eliakim is going to be this anchor for the rest of his family. It's almost like having a peg on the wall that has all of these coats and jackets hung on it. And backpacks and belts and all this other stuff. Like I get the picture of my own house when I see this. And the, the wall that we have. All the stuff that's on that. It's incredible the amount of things that that little thing can hold. Well, what's going to happen after a while? It's not going to keep. 
Eliakim is just a man. In that day, verse 25, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will cut down and fall, and the load that was on it, it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Even that peg that Eliakim was is going to give way. There's a day that's coming for them and for all people, really, that no one's honor is going to be able to save them. Babylon is coming. This is the right judgment of the Lord. What about for us, brothers and sisters? There are a lot of honorable people in this world that do very honorable things, and that's great. Even pagans can seemingly good, do good things for people. I've known many non-Christians who are otherwise fine people, upstanding citizens, moral people. They do for their community. They're good spouses. They're good parents. They keep the law. They keep their grass short. They're not bad people in the sense that you and I might think that. It's almost as if they're running a race and running it well, looking around thinking, I've really got this whole life thing figured out. And they start to cheer for themselves. And maybe they should if they're good people, right? They do all the right things, except there will come a day when all of those right things will be considered as a filthy rag before the holiness of a holy God. In that day, the Lord will bring judgment and everything in his wake will be decimated. There will be no outracing him on that day. No one does. No one wins the race. Only Christ. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. All have sinned, and so all deserve wrath. What about for the Christian? For the Christian... We were running that race too. And then Christ said, I'll run the race for you. The peg on the wall that will not come loose, that will always remain, is what he is. And it's not because we were the good ones. He plucked us out of the race and said, you know what, I'd really like to look at that one. In fact, it's only if you know that you were completely incapable of running at all that you'll ever see your need of Christ and understand the kingdom of God. Unless you come to Him in repentance and belief, you may as well not come at all, which is what we're getting ready to sing. Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, stop trying to win the race. Be free. Stop trying to keep your peg on the wall. Christ is that peg. And He holds you don't have to. Jesus did it. He's done it. Rest in Him. For the unbeliever, run to Jesus. He's the only way that you're going to find rest. And He's the only way that you're going to be delivered from the wrath of God the Father. There's no other way. You're not going to outrace Him. It's just going to be a waiting game for you. You need to call upon the name of the Lord. And so in conclusion... Let us be a people, brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us be a people who set aside our foolish pride that separates us from the Lord and let us humble ourselves and run to Him for mercy and grace. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we see ourselves in the mirror of Your Word. We are prideful. We are like Shebna. We deserve to be tossed to and fro. 
But yet, you made us alive together with Christ Jesus. We have victory through him. Even while we were dead in our trespasses, even while we were considered children of wrath, sons and daughters of disobedience, you have made us one of your own. Not because of any will of our own, and because of good works that we have, but because of what you have done, because of your good works, your faithfulness. And so, Lord, we thank you. Help us to serve you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.